0: Tonight's passage will be Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 7. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we confess that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, that you are the King and sovereign over all things. And that not just in some vague sense of king over creation or even just as king over your church, but that you are king over us and our hearts. We pray now that you would instruct us from your word as to what service we might offer to you as our king and what blessings we may enjoy by submitting to your rule. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it will surprise absolutely none of you to learn that my favorite movie as a teenager, history nerd that I am, was the 1995 movie Braveheart. You know the one Mel Gibson plays 13th century Scottish patriot William Wallace leads a small band of outlaws that spark a general rebellion against the usurpations of the dastardly King of England. It's great, there's dash and daring-do, heroism and ladies-in-waiting. There's a villain that you love to hate. We cheer when Wallace cuts down the English like he's mowing the lawn. And the honest men among us will admit to shedding a manly tear or two when instead of pleading for mercy while he's being tortured to death, Wallace cries, Freedom! Spoiler alert. Imagine what that movie would have been like, though, if the evil, tyrannical king was instead a just, righteous, and benevolent ruler. What a different story that would have been, it would, in short, be a fitting allegory of sinful man's rebellion against God, of your story before he redeemed you, how you would not submit to any rule but your own. We know from Scripture that Christ fulfills the office of a king and is mediating between God and the world. He rules over creation and sets it to order, ordaining all that happens through his just and wise providence and in his subduing the rebellious hearts of sinful man. He conquers man's autonomous self-rule and subjects the creature back under the rule of God where it belongs. There is much that we might say about Christ's kingly rule over all things, but we will be focusing tonight on that, that particular aspect of his kingship, of which our passage helps us to understand quite a bit. Isaiah 9, 7 reads, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Well, the primary doctrine that we learn from this text is that Christ rules over and is building an everlasting kingdom of true righteousness and peace. We're going to first briefly consider the nature of this kingdom, the methods of this kingdom, and how Christ subdues rebellious hearts. We'll then consider four uses or applications of this doctrine and its implications. The first implication as to the nature of this kingdom is that it is an eternal kingdom which Christ rules over. We learn from our text, firstly, that it's an eternal kingdom, and that's written on every line of the passage in some way. We read, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. It's ruled by the Davidic king who is promised by covenant of God to his people through David to have an eternal rule of justice and righteousness from this time and f- this time forth and forevermore and it is a kingdom built and established by the zeal of the Lord and not by the hands of man secondly it is a kingdom which is spiritual and not carnal in nature Besides the immutable and everlasting nature of this kingdom, that Christ's kingdom is spiritual in nature is evident in that it is a kingdom of true righteousness, justice, and peace. And that it is accomplished by the zeal of the Lord, meaning it is the result of a supernatural, miraculous work of the Lord earthly kingdoms, which are carnal in nature, use carnal and external means to effect imperfect justice and peace. The creation of laws written on paper or tablets of stone, the threatening of violence and coercion by the state for breaking those laws and the encouragement to do good through various benefits. These can only accomplish some semblance of outward submission, but they cannot affect the heart's we know from the Old Testament that even Israel, which was God's own people, ruled by God through an imperfect kingly mediator, which had God's own law written on stone tablets and ordinances of true religion, could not affect true righteousness, justice, and peace. True righteousness and justice can only come from a pure heart, and true peace from a clean conscience and an objective peace made with God through Christ. The heart of sinful man can never yield true obedience to God's righteous laws, and no other ruler than Christ can mediate true peace with God. Israel needed a perfect king, a spiritual king, to perfectly mediate God's righteousness to them, to rule with perfect justice, and to bring real peace through leading them in true worship and a steady devotion to destroying the sin that upset the peace of that land. That king whom Isaiah prophesied of, we know, is Christ. But do not suppose, as some might, that because of the eternality and the spiritual nature of the kingly rule of Christ, that Isaiah is speaking primarily of eschatological things. There is some sense, as we heard earlier, in which these things are awaiting a final consummation, but there is also a very real sense in which Christ is establishing his government now. We will briefly consider how this government is established. First of all, those to whom the Father has elected in eternity, the gospel call goes out and is made effectual. Christ has redeemed them by his blood and their sins have been atoned for. And so the powers of sin and death no longer have any claim on them, but Christ does. Christ conquers the sinner's heart by tearing down all arguments and prideful conceits against him to bring them into his kingdom. And having torn down these fortifications, he does not take them by violence as an earthly conqueror does, But he gives to them a new heart and a new mind as tokens of his goodwill and sweetly draws the conquered to enjoy gracious terms of peace to which they freely offer themselves on the day of his power. Christ, therefore, snatches out of Satan's kingdom of darkness what rightfully belongs to himself. And second, Christ accomplishes true justice by sitting on the throne of the heart ruling over the conscience of the redeemed and conforming it to the Lord's standards for their relations with God and man as the terms of their being his subjects. Thirdly, he there also mediates a perfect expression of God's righteousness by enforcing those terms and works them into the redeemed heart by his various gifts of grace, by restraining them from further sin by his Holy Spirit, and by chastising them through his wise and merciful providence when they do stray in their sin. These being the primary means through which Christ subdues rebellious sinners and establishes his rule over them, we may deduce then that the great enemy and spoiler of this work is sin, the world, and the ruler of this present evil age. And we may now briefly consider four applications for how we might join our king in fighting against our sin so that we might enjoy to the fullest the blessings listed in our passage. The first application is for the unconverted among us, you young people who have not yet yielded to Christ's, Christ's authority. All the people present this evening you especially should be persuaded of the need for Christ to come and to rule over your hearts. I know that many of you are good and obedient children. Many of you are the children of our elders, and your behavior reflects well upon their qualifications in serving in that office by first serving to instruct you in their homes. But we and you know that it is often with a reluctant or begrudging heart that you yield and submit It is out of external submission and not yet from a place of genuine love for Christ and for righteousness. If you're not convinced, for some of you the time's not far off when you will be out from under the authority of your father and mother. How you govern yourself then will tell the truth of it. I appeal to you now that you do not have to wait until the shame and humiliation of sin demonstrate that your hearts are bent towards rebellion against Christ. Christ stands ready to receive you now and to establish his kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit in your hearts. Do not wait and discover how quickly bad company will destroy the good deposit given to you by your parents, but give yourself up to Christ's rule. Or you will find that sin is a far crueler master which will take all that it can from you until you at last perish. Number two, if this kingdom is a kingdom of everlasting peace and righteousness, then the Christian in Christ's service, however difficult that service might seem to their flesh, may be confident that the result of obedient service will certainly be true peace in their hearts. It's not obedience to Christ which causes unrest and anxiety in the Christian's heart. Jesus is, as he says, a meek and a lowly master. His yoke is light and easy, and his commands are not burdensome. Sin is the disturber of the peace in your hearts as it trembles at the risk of being put to death in the body of Christ He'll attempt any bargain any plea will instill any uncertainty or doubt in our lord's faithfulness and promises sin will lull you into thinking that the danger it poses to your soul is not so great and would sue for an end of your warring with it your best love sins will Persuade you that its loss is not worth the prize Jesus promises for putting it to death and enduring to the end. And so sin upsets the peace of your heart and makes you to prefer peace with it instead of peace with God. Sin will make you sluggish and lazy in your other duties, which require you to live according to Christ's commands the worship due to Him, the gathering together with the rest of the saints the raising up of your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord and the spreading of the gospel. Christian, however long or difficult your fight with sin is, you must not stop your warring against it until it at last dies with you. You must believe your king when he tells you of the terrible effect which sin will have in your life and of the blessed peace that obedience to his commandments bring. You must learn to prefer the tranquility of a clean conscience towards duty to God than the satisfaction of scratching the itches of your flesh and tremble at the dreadful repayment Christ gives to those who take on his name and treasonously make their own private peace with sin. In this end, we come to application number two, or excuse me, number three. If the kingdom of Christ is accomplished in the believer by the zeal of the Lord of hosts, then the Christian may be assured that Christ himself graciously aids and empowers them in their fight. We learn in our text that this kingdom is accomplished not by strength nor by might, but by the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of armies. For our part, the Apostle Paul instructs us to daily put on the whole armor of God, which is necessary for us to stand in the day of difficulty. We are also informed by Isaiah, in Isaiah 59, in connection with our text, that the Lord himself girds himself up as a warrior dressed for battle, clothed in vengeance and zeal to kill the sins of his people. If you are beleaguered by temptation on all sides, You can resist knowing that your king is near and will refresh and renew you until he at last gives you the victory over it. You may, therefore, when you grow weary of your wrestling with sin to obtain the crown of life, be comforted and sustained by knowing that the captain of your salvation fights alongside of you. And of the increase of his government and righteousness, there is no end You may lose ground here or there, perhaps even experience substantial losses, but he will not leave any corner of your heart untamed. Besides which, he graciously has given to you his word and ordinances to sustain you by the promises awaiting when the warring is over and has made you to be part of a nation of fellow believers for mutual encouragement and support, And when your zeal is lacking, the zeal of your fellow in doing their part may convict and instruct you in your own duties. Application number four. If Christ's kingdom is one of justice, then you may be confident that his various providences to expose your sin and weaknesses are for your good. It is instructive to note that the context which this particular passage comes in is right in the middle of a time when judah is faced by many temptations to sin by the looming threat of the assyrian empire which the lord calls his rod of chastening lord jesus as king over both his people and over creation does ordain all things which come to pass This wise, providential rule, we are told, is the means by which he works all things together for our good and our conformity to Christ. All that he does in this earth is towards the end of accomplishing his holy and righteous rule in your heart. And he does wisely arrange all things to aid and to bless us, but also to instruct and to train us. And this training may include providences which are difficult, and which expose us to the sins which we are predisposed. But we may trust that our wise king does this to chasten and to correct us, to humble us, to expose the deceitfulness and power of the corruptions still at work in our hearts, and to nurture a closer and more constant dependence upon him, and a greater watchfulness against all future opportunities for sin to break out in our lives. These providences, which so often see us lapse into sin, are painful and humiliating. But we may be confident that our wise king is ordering them to our good. Do not despise the chastening that comes from these experiences, but embrace them as from a just king and a loving father, His arrows of conviction and rod of correction sting greatly. But they are better by far than the torments that await those who will give a full reckoning for all their sins all at once on the day of judgment. So it is that even as king over the natural world, that the zeal of the Lord is just to accomplish his kingdom of everlasting peace and righteousness in the hearts of his people. But as a last word of warning, he does also arrange these things to expose to those who are not his subjects to the dangers of sin, to the opposite end of hardening them to their condemnation. Take care that you do not miss or neglect these opportunities to greater trust and submission to Christ. If unchecked sin has free reign in your heart, if you do not find that Christ will spend a rod to correct you, then you may have great cause to consider whether Christ has indeed a claim over your heart. We are past our time to summarize our text teaches us that Jesus is a king who mediates God's righteousness, justice, and peace by warring against our sin and our lives, and that this isn't just a promise for the age to come, but is a present reality which we participate in as his loyal subjects. Christ has risen and has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and by atoning for our sin on the cross, he has broken its power over us and granted to us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Let's pray. Lord, we do confess that although you are king over us, there is much in us that is not submitted to uh, to you, and we often prefer to think of your kingly rule in areas that don't directly concern us and our submission to your authority. We pray that you would teach us to love your righteous rule over us, that we would yield and submit to your just providences, that we would be more diligent and watchful in killing our sin so that we may enjoy the blessed peace that comes only from your righteous government over us. We pray that you would do this, that we may worship you in holiness and righteousness for all our days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.